Our text this morning comes from a part of the Sermon on the Mount. The seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, the very first verse. And Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now when Jesus, folks, says in this passage, Judge not, that is not a bit of good advice. To be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. But then we have to ask ourselves the question what exactly does Jesus mean by this word? What does Jesus mean when he says, Judge not? Reading that, I do not hear Jesus forbidding us to form an estimate of the moral worth of those around us. Jesus is not prohibiting us from reaching a conclusion as to the good or bad character of our fellow man. Jesus does not call upon us in that passage to shut our eyes to the facts before us. And we are neither to stop up our ears to voices that we know to be true. Jesus Christ knows it is inevitable and necessary that we come to some conclusions as to the good or evil character of people we associate with on a daily basis. To be sure, Jesus Himself came to such conclusions. Jesus did not pass compliments upon all people indiscriminately. Jesus did not go about up and down the dusty roads of Palestine giving words of praise to every individual He met. There were some folks Jesus came in contact with that, as we would say in our East Texas vernacular, they got a tongue lashing from the Lord. He called some people a generation of snakes. He once referred to a group of people as whited sepulchers. And there were those for whom Jesus Christ could not find sufficiently scathing and bitter words to describe. And Jesus also did not hesitate in the white heat of His indignation to express His wonder and amazement how those so condemned could escape the damnation of hell. So, in our text, our duty to properly estimate the character of those we come in contact with is implied. Because if you read the entire context of that part of the Sermon on the Mount, A little bit later, Jesus says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, and neither cast you your pearls before swine. Well, how can we not give holy things to the dogs, and how can we not cast our pearls before swine, unless we can come to some conclusion as to who is a dog and who is swinish? How can we be obedient to that part of the sermon? 
unless we determine those who are dogs from those who aren't dogs. Well, later in that same chapter, in the context of this whole concept, a little later Jesus says, By their fruits you shall know them. By the life that they live, by the example they set, by the way they conduct themselves, you'll know who's swinish and you'll know who's a dog, Jesus said. You see, over and over and over again, Jesus Christ states and implies the necessity of our forming, now listen to it, accurate estimates of the moral worth of our fellow man. So what is Jesus forbidding here? Jesus is forbidding in this passage what we in our day and time are accustomed to calling fault-finding or sometimes nitpicking. Jesus here is warning us against the sin of seeking for the worst in others instead of seeking for the best in others. Jesus is not forbidding me and you from forming just judgments. However, we are to avoid judgments that are harsh, unjust, unkind, and unbrotherly. Jesus is saying in this passage, do not allow yourself to become someone who's always looking for the worst. Jesus is saying, do not develop a habit of looking just for something you can condemn. And you know why He says that? Because Jesus Christ knows human nature all too well. He knows if we develop this habit of nitpicking, if we develop this habit of fault-finding, if we develop this habit of always looking for the worst, we will not judge justly. And developing that kind of a habit, we will judge unjustly. Jesus is trying to warn us against one of the most common and hurtful sins of our day and time. And that's the sin of fault finding. What is this evil? What's the evil of this habit? Well, one thing is this habit of fault finding, this habit of nitpicking, this habit of looking for the worst is blinding. The fault finder forms no just or accurate Estimate, either of himself or herself, or their brother or their sister. This habit makes it impossible to form a right estimate of our brothers and our sisters. You see, those who are looking for the worst in other people, generally are going to find what they're looking for. And you know what else? 
in the same proportion that we magnify the faults of our brothers and our sisters, we minimize their virtues. If I wanted to get an accurate estimate of a landscape, and I wanted somebody or something to tell me what a landscape looked like, I wouldn't send a buzzard to make the estimate. Okay? Because that buzzard is not going to be seeking the best. He's going to be looking for the worst. He's going to pass over the beauty of the flowers. He's not going to see the hills and the valleys and the streams, but he's going to come back and say, there was a magnificent rotting carcass underneath a thorn bush that I saw. Oftentimes, that kind of situation occurs when folks attend the worship service. One Sunday you came to church and the singing was excellent. It was like an angelic choir. The reading of the Scripture text was a gem. It was one of the finest passages in the Word of God. But during the course of his sermon, the preacher said something you didn't like. Now, he also said a lot of things that you were in perfect agreement with. But you had no ear for those things. Your sole interest was in what he said you did not approve of. And so you went away that morning, and the only part of the sermon you heard or thought about was the part you didn't like. And that's the part you told your friends about. That's the part you talked about over lunch and over coffee. Talking with friends, most of whom weren't members of the church. And finally, to ease your troubled conscience, you wrote that preacher an anonymous letter about it. And why was that? Because you were looking for the worst. And looking for the worst, you found it. And that was all you found. Now let's just suppose, you're going to love this, Let's just suppose that that same day you invited me to come to your home for dinner. And we got there, we walked in the door, and soon after we arrived, you announced that dinner is on the table. And we take our place at a table that is filled with food. There's a big platter of fried chicken. A big bowl of mashed potatoes and some cream gravy to go on the mashed potatoes. And biscuits to sop that gravy with. And there were lots of other things on that table that I really love and I really enjoy. And there was peach cobbler and ice cream for dessert. But just to the right of my plate is a bowl of Brussels sprouts. And it just so happens, in case you haven't heard, I don't like Brussels sprouts. But 
because I don't like Brussels sprouts, I refuse the chicken and the mashed potatoes and the gravy and I refuse the biscuits, everything else, and I don't even eat any peach cobbler and ice cream. I make my meal entirely of Brussels sprouts. And then I go my way and I talk to my friends and I talk to the people at lunch and people at the coffee shop and everybody I come in contact with about what a lousy meal I had when I came to your house. And you say, preacher, that's not fair. Why? That's just treating dinner the same way some folks treat a sermon, isn't it? Well, that's different. I was looking for something I didn't like, just like you were looking for the worst, and I found it. Brussels sprouts. Now, every thinking person, every rational person, is going to agree that the judgments passed by the vulture and the judgments passed by me on your lunch and by you on the sermon are false judgments. Are they not? But they are no more false than our estimate of the character of others when all we're looking for is something to criticize. There is no person on the top side of God's green earth so pure that you can't find something about them to criticize if that's what you're wanting to do. Even Jesus couldn't escape it. The church people of His day were so eager to find something to condemn in Him that they found absolutely nothing in Jesus to praise. When He healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day, they didn't ask the healed man who had cured him. They said, who told you to take up your bed and walk? You see, they were looking for something to condemn. And looking for something to condemn, they worked themselves up into such a frenzy of indignation, they actually convinced themselves they were doing the work of God when they crucified God's only begotten Son. This spirit of fault finding, this spirit of nitpicking, leads us to minimize the virtues in our brothers and in our sisters. And you know what else it does? It leads us to a wrong estimate of ourselves. The fault finder tends to minimize his or her own faults and magnify his or her own virtues. The sin the fault finder hates and condemns is the sin of somebody else. And the virtues that are worthwhile or their own. Jesus shows us the truthfulness in this passage in Matthew 7. Because He tells the story of two men there. One has a moat in his eye. It's akin to a speck of sawdust. It's something so small you can scarcely see it without a magnifying glass. The other man has a beam in his eye. An entire log stuck in his eye. It's something big. It's glaring. It's something that's easily seen. It's something that's actually, in fact, 
impossible not to see. But the man with this log in his eye is so concerned about the sawdust in his brother's eye that he becomes completely unconscious to the almost blindness of himself and the almost perfect vision of his brother. This spirit of fault-finding and nitpicking blinds us to the truth about ourselves and our fellow man. And it inevitably leads to pride and self-satisfaction and smugness. Because we're blind to the virtues of others and we're blind to our own faults. In Luke chapter 18, there's a perfect example in the story Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican. Two men went down to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and a publican. The publican stood and prayed with himself. He smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he wouldn't lift his eyes toward heaven. The publican stands and he lifts his eyes toward heaven and says, Oh God, I thank Thee I'm not as other men are, unjust, extortioners, adulterers. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I possess. And he nearly breaks his arm, patting himself on the back, telling God how lucky God is to have a servant like him. And Jesus tells us the publican went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. He, Jesus said everyone that humbles himself will be exalted. And he that exalts himself, Jesus says, shall be humbled. This critical spirit ministers to our pride and makes repentance almost impossible. Because someone who is self-satisfied, someone who is satisfied with himself or with herself, never repents. Ever. No one, no man or woman whose eyes are fixed on the sins of their brothers or their sisters instead of their own, ever repents. And this spirit of fault-finding, folks, it destroys our usefulness. Few people are ever helped by sharp, unbrotherly criticism. Those that do the most for us are not those that believe the worst about us. They're those who believe the best about us. To be certain, to be sure, we instinctively resent those who come in a fault-finding spirit. Those who come in a nitpicking spirit to rebuke us. It doesn't help. It hardens. That's the reason Paul writes what he does in Galatians 6 and verse 1. He says, Brethren, you who are an overtaken... If a brother or sister be overtaken in a fault, what do we do about our brother and sister that's overtaken in a fault, Paul? We restore them in a spirit of meekness. Why, Paul? Considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. It's like a doctor I remember years ago in Marshall. If he weighed a pound, he weighed 300 pounds. He was well known. 
for his gourmet cooking. And he loved to cook French foods with all the rich and creamy sauces. He was also well known for his habit of smoking at least two packs of cigarettes a day. And if you came to him and you were having problems, the first two things, Dr. So-and-so, and I'm not going to call his name, but the first two things he would tell you, you need to go on a diet and lose some weight and you need to quit smoking. Those were the first two things he would always tell you. The very two things that he was the most guilty of. Guess how much most of his patients listened to him? To be a fault finder. It kills our usefulness. Because that individual is the worst possible contradiction of the gospel that they're trying to preach. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Every day, we're being measured by our own yardstick. Every day, we're having to buy on the same scales we're selling from. The judgments we deal out to others are the judgments being dealt to us. Remember that person you sat down with yesterday that helped you pick someone to pieces? Today they're helping someone else pick you to pieces. Sometimes we try to excuse ourselves. We excuse our criticisms by a pretense of pious motives. We don't deceive anybody but ourselves when we do that. Our fellow man knows us. Be assured of that. Kindness begets kindness. Brotherliness begets brotherliness. Write this down. It's on the final exam. Hatred is always the father of hatred. The very first thing we need to understand about this habit of fault finding it's sin to be forever criticizing to be forever pointing out the evil in others is not mere weakness and it's not a mark of our moral or intellectual superiority it is the mark of a wicked unregenerate heart and to be constantly Critically, fault-finding is to be an individual that's a moral failure. And that's not something I came up with all on my own. That's not something that I just dreamed up. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Did you hear it? If any among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. James tells us that in James chapter 1 and verse 26. Let's face the facts square in the eye, eyeball to eyeball. No man or woman who is a perpetual fault finder, can be a follower of Jesus Christ.
Because we must not only recognize that it is sin, we must repent of that sin. And by repentance, the Bible means we've got to stop doing the evil thing we've been doing. We've got to take ourselves in hand and say, by the grace of God, I'll stop looking for the worst in other people. I'll stop being a self-appointed inspector of warts and boils. I'll stop usurping the throne of God. I'll realize there is some bit of good in everyone. I will try for the sake of Christ. And I will try for the sake of the church to look for the good and not just the bad. A course of this kind, I am persuaded, would be a revelation to all of us. I really think it would be. Because the person who's looking for the best finds it. Just as surely as the person looking for the worst finds that also. There's always something to commend. When Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well at Sychar, there were a thousand ugly sins that woman was guilty of. But Jesus Christ saw something good in her. He even complimented her on telling him the truth when she said she had no husband. Jesus also gave her credit for longing for the heights in spite of the fact that at that point in time she was foundering in the mud. If we're going to cure this kind of a habit, we've got to have a power higher than ourselves. I can refuse something, and I can refuse to say something unkind by closing my lips and biting my tongue, but even then I may be thinking it. When Paul writes that 13th chapter of the Corinthian letter and he tells us about love, what does he tell us? Love thinketh no evil. Love doesn't judge harshly. It has no desire to. How do we get hold of this? It's not easy to criticize our own children, is it? Even harder is to criticize our grandchildren, isn't it? You want to see some mother or grandmother get fighting mad? Criticize their children or criticize their grandchildren. It's not easy to criticize those that are dearest and nearest to our hearts. But those that are different from us, those that criticize us, those that despitefully use us, well, that's different. How do we grasp hold of a love that can enable us to think tenderly even of these? How are we to be empowered with such a spirit of gentleness and kindness that when we are reviled, we'll be like Jesus and revile not again. There's only one answer to that question. One answer and one answer only. And the answer is, we get hold of that love by making Jesus Christ the Lord and the Master 
of our lives. It's His invitation as together we stand and what we sing.